Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we focus on and get an update on the serial murders of Black women in South Los Angeles. On December 8th, 2022, an event was held featuring Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly and Dr. Terrian Williamson. The event was organized by the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders to reaffirm that Black women's lives count to gather support for a permanent community-based memorial for the victims and for justice for the victims and their families. The event keynote speakers also put the murders within the historic context of the devaluation of Black women's lives and included information about similar pockets of murders that have taken place across the United States. Since the early 1980s, at least 200 Black women and girls were victims of serial murders or mysteriously disappeared in South Los Angeles and presumed to be also victims. Many were victims of the multiple serial murders, including the notorious Grim Sleeper, who preyed on vulnerable and impoverished Black women, sex workers, homeless women, and those who fell prey to the opioid epidemic. Despite media hype, not all of the victims fit these descriptions. Some of you may be familiar with the documentary film Tales of the Grim Sleeper by award-winning filmmaker Nick Broomfield. However, most media outlets paid little or no attention to these murders, taking their cue, it seems, from law enforcement, which shockingly and horrendously labeled the victims as NHI, no human involved. Most city and county officials made little attempt to raise the alarm. All of this resulted in more women continuing to be killed. All this compelled me to found in the mid-1980s the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. Those of us, all community-based folks in the Black Coalition and our supporters worked uh, to raise awareness of the murders and to press for justice for the victims and their families. The Black Coalition, as part of its efforts today for a permanent memorial for the victims, are asking for support from both the city and county for the memorial, as well as the general public. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics, now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Republicans who control the House of Representatives will vote on a leader for a third day today after failing for a second day to come to an agreement. Some 20 hardline Republicans are preventing California's Kevin McCarthy from getting the 218 votes he needs. In his party to be House Speaker, Eileen Alfandari reports. My colleagues, well, it's Groundhog Day again. 
Florida Republican Kat Kamek nominated McCarthy on the sixth ballot. The ultimate outcome wasn't much different than the previous five tries. 20 conservative holdouts still refused to support him, leaving McCarthy significantly short of the 218 votes typically needed to become Speaker. The rump group of 20 right-wingers threw their support behind Byron Donalds of Florida. He's one of four black Republicans who will serve in the current Congress. Texas Republican Chip Roy, who has been lambasted in the past for making light of lynching and who has called critical race theory racist, nominated Donalds. Roy invoked the words of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. as he did. We do not seek to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. Democrats kept offering their leader, Hakeem Jeffries, for speaker, and he kept gaining more votes than McCarthy, but it takes a majority, not a plurality, to be elected speaker. President Biden departing the White House for a bipartisan event in Kentucky with Senate Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said the rest of the world is looking at the scene on the House floor. They have a Congress that can't function. It is just embarrassing. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. As Republicans squabble over who will be the next speaker, there are essentially no members in the House of Representatives, only members elect. Without a speaker, none can be sworn in, and the Congress cannot convene or vote on any rules or legislation. House Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar of California slammed Republicans for the chaos, a ruleless, memberless House. Let's hope that this isn't a rerun of 1855 and 56 when it took 133 ballots. What we saw was the true character of the modern-day Republican Party, obsessed with power and their own personal advancement at the expense of working families and the needs of everyday Americans. The United Nations Security Council will hold an emergency meeting today about the provocative visit by Israel's new far-right minister of national security to the Alaska Mosque compound this week, flanked by a large contingent of police officers. Under a long-standing agreement, Jews are allowed to visit the site, which is home to ancient biblical temples, but not to pray there. Palestinians fear Itamar Ben-Gavir and other far-right Israelis are ready to violate that agreement. Palestinian Ambassador Riyad Mansour says the actions have encouraged other attacks against Palestinians. The attack is not only against our holy sites in Al-Aqsa Mosque and in Haram al-Sharif. There are because of this environment of extremism that this Israeli extreme government, the extremist in the history of Israel is providing is leading to additional aggression against our Christian sites, Christian graveyards. You've seen by now that there are crosses over, you know, graveyards being trampled upon and attacked by extreme settlers. This is a toxic environment. The attack on a Christian cemetery in occupied East Jerusalem occurred over the New Year holiday and was caught on security footage showing two people breaking into the cemetery and destroying icons and smashing crosses. Pope Francis joined tens of thousands of faithful in bidding farewell to Pope Benedict at a rare mass for a dead pope presided over by a living one. It ended an unprecedented decade for the Catholic Church that was sparked by the German theologian's decision to retire. He was also known to take action against predator priests. 
Pope Benedict died Saturday at the age of 95. The mastermind of a nationwide college admissions and bribery scheme that ensnared celebrities, prominent business people, and other parents has been sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Rick Singer's punishment is the longest sentence handed down in the scandal. He pled guilty nearly four years ago to paying off entrance exam administrators and coaches to get often undeserving but wealthy students into elite schools with inflated test scores and bogus athletic credentials. He also helped authorities build the case against dozens of others by secretly recording phone calls and meetings with wealthy parents who paid huge sums to get their kids into the school of their choice. Storms took a toll across the U.S., killing at least two people in Northern California from a series of atmospheric rivers that also canceled Bay Area flights due to winds up to 85 miles per hour and caused a second wettest day on record in San Francisco this week. In the Midwest, ice and heavy snow closed schools in Minnesota and western Wisconsin. In the south, a possible tornado damaged homes, downed trees, and flipped a vehicle on its side in Montgomery, Alabama. In Illinois, staff from the National Weather Service's Chicago office plans to survey damage following at least six tornadoes, the largest number of rare January tornadoes recorded in the state since 1989. Scientists say climate change will increase the intensity of weather. Much of Europe is experiencing a record-breaking heat wave. At least 11 countries, including Bosnia, Belgium, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, have topped record-breaking heat this winter since New Year's Eve. Spring-like temperatures have left little or no snow on the mountains of Bosnia. That's nearly shuttered ski resorts. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. We now bring you excerpts from the uh, recent event held on December 8th, 2022, Black Women's Lives Count, Reclaiming Our Sisters Everywhere. The keynote speaker of it event included Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, author and historian. Co-sponsors included A New Way of Life, Alexandria House, Los Angeles, the Association of Black Women Physicians, Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as BAJI, Black Women Radicals, Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health, UCLA Fielding School of Health, Dr. Cosette Lyons-Jones, Elliot Gould, actor, the Global Women's Strike, the Haiti Action Committee, Healthy African-American Families, the Los Angeles Community Action Network, LA Can, Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, New African Womenist Caucus, filmmaker Nick Broomfield, Papalion Art, Susan Burton, the Charles R. Drew University Black Maternal Health Center of Excellence, U.S. Prostitutes Collective, Women of Color, Global Women's Strike, and the Women's March Foundation, Los Angeles. Let us go now to Black Women's Lives Count, Reclaiming Our Sisters Everywhere. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Aloni Mission Indian and Chicana. My tribe is the Costinon Remsen Carmel tribe, uh, Rodriguez clan. My grandmother is Virginia Antonio Rodriguez Lopez, and my mother is Rita Rodriguez Lopez. We are the direct descendants of Maria Josefa Mojica de la Rosa, who was born into the California mission system before settling in Duarte, California on Tongva land. Our ancestral homelands are the Monterey Bay area, Berkeley, up through San Francisco area. And again, my name is Sylvia Gonzalez Youngblood. 
I am honored uh, today to be delivering the virtual land acknowledgement, but I do also want to kind of signify the importance of the land acknowledgement and why we do land acknowledgements here in California and remembering the Tongva ancestors here in San Gabriel Valley. It's to combat the continued genocide and erasure of Native American peoples here in California and across the U.S. and the continent. So through loss of land, language, history, and culture. So today I'll be giving a land acknowledgement that was created by Julia Bogni, a Tongva elder who has since passed on to the spirit world. It was created in collaboration with Julia and Indigenous Circles of Wellness. And the land acknowledgement is that we acknowledge and thank our Tongva, Tatavian, and Chumash relation on whose ancestral lands we reside, gather, and pray. We honor all of the ancestors and their descendants here today and the contributions of all our relatives past, present, and future. Thank you today, and thank you for allowing me to give this land acknowledgement. And thank you so much, Sylvia Gonzalez, Youngblood. It is right that we open this webinar with an acknowledgement that we are on occupied Indigenous lands. Thank you so very much for joining us. My name is Margaret Prescott, and I'm the founder of the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. And I want to welcome all of you to Black Women's Lives Count, reclaiming our sisters everywhere. We are still continuing to get the word out about the murdered women in South Los Angeles. And also we are planning a permanent memorial for the victims and we are encouraging your support. We also want to acknowledge any family members who have lost loved ones in these horrific murders. We want to acknowledge their presence. To give you a sense of the program, you're going to be hearing some clips. We have amazing keynote speakers, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly. Many of you know of him, of course, with UCLA, very well-known author and historian. You also will hear a little bit a brief bit about the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders and about the Rose South LA Memorial Project. It's a heavy topic, we know, and you can see in the background of, of trying to uh, show some of the faces of the victims. But before I go to introduce the clips, we heard the land acknowledgement from the indigenous people, and I would also like to we use this time to call in the ancestors, call in those African ancestors who made the way, the path for all of us um, to be here today. And we request their presence and their help in making this webinar a success. And for what we are trying to do to lift up these victims, uh, for us to remain on the right path. I also want to lift up um, the spirits of the victims who died in such a brutal and horrific way. You know, I feel their presence. I've been doing this since I founded the coalition in the mid 1980s and I often feel their presence and I think that they likely are with us today. So we want to lift them up and acknowledge them. And we also want to, as I said, acknowledge any family members. We know that the grief 
just doesn't go away. So because the topic is heavy, we do have a lot of information uh, for you. Uh, we are also going to pause at some point in the, in the program for a very brief uh, meditative session so that you could think a bit about what you have heard uh, and then we will continue with our program. So without any further ado, I would now like to introduce two clips. And this, these clips are from the film, Nick Broomfield's film, Tales of the Grim Sleeper. It was shortlisted for an Academy Award. It has been on HBO. And you're going to hear the first clip of Nana Jumphy, who is a member of the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. And then you will hear from one of the survivors. And Nana and the survivor will set the tone for the rest of the program. Let's go to those clips now. You've allowed Black women to walk around here when someone is hunting them, not knowing that they're being hunted. Imagine if they would have treated victim number three as if she was a student over at UCLA with blonde hair and blue eyes. How many other people might still be living? But the lack of concern allowed for this hunting ground to just be free and open for this person. You know, and that is, for me, the real, real, real tragedy. You know, the real tragedy is just the lack of concern allowed so many more people to be murdered. Do you think also that people were afraid to come forward and say something? That's very, very plausible. I mean, the relationship, it's, the relationship with the police and the community is such that no one wants to be um, the person who's giving the police information. You just don't. I tell my own son, you know, he's 16 years old. If something terrible happens and your mother's not home, here are the numbers of people to call. But whatever you do, do not call 911. No, literally, for what? So you can come answer the door, they can blow you away. Don't call 911. You know, or while you're they're asking, you're trying to tell them what happened to you. They're trying to find out, you know, they use drugs every once in a while. Um, you know, are you a part of this gang? They're trying to fill out their little field identification card when you're trying to explain to them that someone has done something, you know? You cannot just, as a Black person, walk into an LAPD station or LASD station and just say, I have something to report and start describing something and think that you're going to you know, be treated with dignity, uh, treated with kindness, treated with concern, and be able to leave in good, you know, warm, yes, I've done something. It is a 99% chance that this is going to be an unpleasant situation for you. We're now queuing up the second clip, which is a survivor of one of the serial killers. There were actually a series of them in South Los Angeles. Yeah, it, okay, yeah, I was out there. That doesn't mean I'm nothing. It doesn't mean I'm nothing. Like I'm a piece of trash. I was trapped. I was trapped. I was trapped. That's not what I That's not what I wanted. That's not the life I wanted. What I'm trying to explain to you and say to you is that just because they have Lonnie doesn't mean this is over with. There's another motherfucker out there just as sick as he is. You know what I mean? 
our sisters, they may be gone, but they're not forgotten. It's very hard to see those faces, some mother's daughter, some father's child, to know that they're gone, but we are carrying on with their memory and uplifting them today. I would now like to welcome Janet Dandridge. She, I have so much love for this young sister. A few years ago, she came to one of our meetings in South Los Angeles and Janet said, I wanna volunteer, I wanna work on this. She is a fantastic artist. And the flyer that many of you have seen, you see a figure in a dress, that figure is Janet. And that dress is a cloth that she had especially made with the photos of the victims. And she has continued over the years to be with us. She's now a young mom <laughs> of a, a one-year-old boy. And she has been key with helping to pull this webinar together. I'd like to welcome Janet Dandridge. And she will tell you a little bit briefly about the Black Coalition as well as the Memorial Project. Uh, Janet, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much, Margaret. I don't even know where I would be actually <laughs> in understanding and knowing what's going on in South Los Angeles if it hasn't been or wasn't for your work. So I, I am deep, in deep gratitude to you. So thank you so much, Margaret. I appreciate that lovely introduction. Um, hello, everyone. I am going to share some information, as Margaret said, about the Black Coalition Fighting Bacterial Murders and about Rose, South LA, reclaiming our sisters everywhere. Los Angeles, the actual permanent memorial that you are here to support. So bear with me while uh, I read some information. Following the police announcement that 11 women were victims of a serial killer in South Los Angeles in the mid-1980s, Margaret Prescott founded the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, BC, a coalition formed to bring public awareness to the murders, to press the police and city officials to prioritize the murders, to ensure that the media did not trivialize and malign the victims, to bring attention to the neglect of South Los Angeles and similar communities, and to highlight the general lack of resources in the impacted communities. Since its founding, the coalition has held press conferences, vigils, and other protests, and supports families of victims they have worked with. The Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders continues to press for justice, accountability, just victims' compensation for families and for the lives of all Black women to count, for the lives of all Black women to count. Rose, reclaiming our sisters everywhere. To date, it is estimated that over 200, 200 women and girls are victims of serial murders or have mysteriously disappeared. The South Los Angeles community has been traumatized by the violent loss of so many precious lives over such a protracted period. This loss and trauma must be acknowledged. We refuse to accept the silence and indifference that often follows these murders. We say the names of these black women and girls who are victims of serial murderers in South Los Angeles and etch them in stone. 
each victim is a mother's child, a father's daughter, a sibling's sister, a friend. The victims deserve a permanent memorial that reclaims their dignity, shows community care, and provides their family members and the community a dignified space for reflection and healing. The victims are gone, but they will never be forgotten. There is no official commemoration of these devastating events. A monument is a public statement of worth. It restores dignity to the victims, validates their humanity and the humanity of their surviving families alike. It declares undeniably that these Black lives mattered. Rose South Los Angeles is that public statement, reclaiming our sisters everywhere. Thank you so much, Janet, and thank you for all of your work. I want to acknowledge that the mother of Barbara Ware, we lost Barbara in 1987. Diana Ware is with us. Diana, we know that Barbara is with us as we go through this and we walk this path together. And we want to thank you for your strength and everything that you have brought to this struggle. Laverne, Janisha's mom, Janisha Peters, we lost her in 2007. I would now like to welcome Dr. Chandra Ford again another person without whom none of this would happen. Chandra, maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself and how you came to this struggle briefly, because I know you're going to be introducing one of our keynote speakers, Dr. Chandra Ford. Thank you, Margaret. And first of all, I just want to thank you for your dedication. It's difficult to do this work, and you have been at it for a long time, often by yourself or pulling in uh, people as they were um, willing and able along the way. And um, we wouldn't be here today were it not for that continued struggle. So thank you. Um, I am Chandra Ford. I also am a, a faculty person at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, where I had the privilege of launching the Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health. To me, we cannot consider the serial murders of Black women, anything short of a public health issue, um, <clears throat> in the sense that this is something that plagues our communities and ought to be viewed as a challenge that the public health community has a responsibility to address. Greetings, everyone. And it is indeed a pleasure to be here to honor the lives of these women who was taken from us, from their families, from their communities in the way that they were taken. So right now what we wanna do, we wanna to connect to what we feel inside in regards to these women and their lives. So I'm gonna ask everyone to just get very comfortable. Take a moment, close your eyes and take a deep breath in, inhale and exhale. Inhale again and Exhale. And I'm going to ask you to continue to inhale and exhale, feeling the energy flowing through you and out of you. As you continue to inhale and exhale, 
Think about the names of the women that you have heard today. Think about the families that you have heard from. Think about the community members. And as you think about everything, what do you feel? What do you feel inside of your body? What emotions come up? Name those emotions within you the same way that the names of our sisters whose lives were taken were named today. You may feel anger, maybe hurt, maybe a little despair. You may feel justice. You may even feel revenge. Whatever it is you feel, acknowledge it and name it. And as you continue to inhale and exhale, connecting with your emotions, what part of your body do you feel? What part of your body is responding to these emotions? Pinpoint that area inside of you. Now breathe into it. Inhale and exhale. And as you feel these areas of your body that are responding to these emotions, begin to breathe in light and healing, love and compassion, empathy. For what you feel in your body at this moment is your connection to these women and their experiences. Being part of the living, part of our work is to help our ancestors to move on. And these sisters are now our ancestors. So we help them on the other side as we breathe in love, compassion, justice, appreciation, celebration of their lives and honor for what they came to this earth to do and what they represented. Take a moment to feel the energy that's been generated inside of you. Take a moment to allow this energy to fill every part of your being for we are all one. And I'll send this love, this light, this, this energy of, of healing to the spirits of these women, to send it out into the universe. They'll receive it. They'll receive, they're receiving everything that's being generated from all of the speakers here today. And then send that energy to their loved ones, touch their hearts, send it from your heart to theirs. And as we leave this space and continue on learning more about this history in our community, carry within you the energy of these women. See them healed and renewed in the spirit form that they're in now and carry love in your heart and compassion for their family members. Take a deep breath in, release, 
Last breath in, inhale and exhale. Move forward knowing that you are a vessel of healing. You are a vessel of change. Ashe. 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 Thank you so much, Renika Adachi. We really, we really needed that. We appreciate you joining us. And Janet, thank you for hooking this up. I want to thank Nick Bloomfield for the film. I also want to thank, importantly, the family members uh, for allowing us to share your story and, and continuing to walk, even when it's very difficult and painful to walk in this journey and in, and in this in this pain in many ways. And we're hoping that we can get to a place of reclaiming something of the dignity that your loved ones deserve. And with that, I'm actually going to announce that we'll transition now to the morning song for victims and their loved ones. Yeah, and thank you for that, Chandra, to say the language in this song is Dida from out of the Ivory Coast. It's called Lubu. And this is mourning for all of those that we have lost. You're listening to Sojourner Truth with host Margaret Prescott. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And if you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. We're also on SoundCloud. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across Los Angeles County. And internationally, we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in London, England. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at SoTrueRadio. We now turn our attention back to Black Women's Lives Count, reclaiming our sisters everywhere. Just so you know what's coming up, Dr. Kelly is going to be joining us. And I would like now to introduce the man who will welcome Dr. Kelly, Michael Massenberg who is part of the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. Uh, You could look him up. He's an amazing artist uh, and you could see his work. We were really fortunate in our work and in our core to have a few um, artists uh, to join us and be part of us. And I think, uh, Michael, I can't remember, but I think it was at a a screening of Nick Broomfield's film, Mm -hmm. Tales of the Grim Sleeper, by in the Pan-African Film Festival, that you came up and you said, I live in the neighborhood, I'm impacted by this, and I want to help. And you have been with us ever since. Michael Massenberg, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor and pleasure to work with uh, 
uh, all of you, because this has been a long journey and I'm the, the newest one, one of the newest ones involved, but whatever I can do, I'm here. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to introduce you to uh, one of our distinguished um, uh, speakers today, Dr. Robin D. G. Kelly is a distinguished professor and a Gary B. Nash endowed chair of US, in U.S. history at UCLA. He received his education at a uh, bachelor's of uh, arts degrees from uh, Cal State University, Long Beach. He received his master's and doctorate at UCLA. Early in his academic career, uh, right around 2009, 2010, Dr. Kelly served as a chair for the Howard Youngen Hallensburg uh, Professor of American History at Oxford University. He was one of the first African-Americans to do so. Along with his teachings, residencies, and fellowship, in 2014, he was also awarded a distinguished Guggenheim Fellowship. Dr. Kelly is also a prolific essayist, uh, has been published articles and scholarly journals and anthologies and with the popular press, including The Village Voice, Boston Review, and New York Times. Dr. Kelly has published numerous books focused on African-American history, culture, and race relations. He is the author of the definitive biography of the Onus Monk, which received the Penn Open Book Award. His other important books include Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, and also Your Mama's Dysfunctional Fighting Culture or Wars in Urban America. Among his current projects for 2023, Dr. Kelly's next published book will be Black Bodies Swinging, an American Postmodern, which examines the political economy of premature death and the struggles to preserve Black life. It is now I present you with Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly. Th thank you, Michael. Um, the only thing that matters for me is that I know Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> All the other stuff is just useless information. <laughs> but th I really appreciate that. So let me let me just jump in and first with thank yous, both thank you for that really kind and generous introduction. Thank you, uh, Chandra Ford and the Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice and Health for hosting this important event um, and all the work that you do. Uh, special thanks to my friend and colleague, Terion Williamson, uh, who actually taught me more than I taught. So I'm like a student of hers and you should read her book, Scandalize Her Name and read her essay, In Souls, Why Did They Die? Which is very, very important. Um, and especially, thank Margaret Prescott for all the critical work you do. And I'm gonna thank you throughout this, this talk. Um, and I just wanna remind people that this is a fundraiser. Uh, and so you've got to go to that link as soon as you can and donate some money. I put a challenge out, I just, I donated $1,000. Okay, so if you have that kind of money, you should, you should spend it. Um, if you have more than that, you should spend more uh, because this is a very, very important um, uh, uh, project. And as uh, Terion said, there are just basically no or very few memorials uh, to all the Black women murdered uh, all throughout the country. So we're here to memorialize the Black women murdered here in LA and all 
Black women, cisgender, queer, non-binary, trans, who were victims of femicide. Uh, what happened here happened all across the country, as you uh, learn from Charon's brilliant uh, uh, presentation in that very moving film. Uh, and it's also been happening you know, for generations. But we're here to commemorate, uh, at least I'm here, to really focus on the struggle specifically the courageous organizing work of the Black Coalition Fighting Black, Fighting Black Serial Murders, founded by uh, Margaret Prescott. And I know that she doesn't like to toot her own horn, but this is what I'm going to do. Uh, we only know about these women because of Margaret, who founded the Black Coalition in 1985. Uh, basically, her and family members, you know, I mean, she was out there pretty much by herself with the support of the victims of family members. And over time recruited a handful of really dedicated organizers uh, like the incredible attorney, Nana Jumpy, uh, certainly heard from Janet Dandridge and Michael Massenberg and others. Uh, they fought for decades, mobilizing against the routine killing of black women who were treated by police and society as a whole as disposable. The LAPD inferred uh, you know, their disposability by using the moniker uh, that they use for most Black people, that is NHI, no humans involved uh, in these cases. Um, the Black coalition was relentless. You know, Margaret became a thorn in the side of the LAPD and a public relations nightmare for the city of LA. She exposed the police for inaction and for suppressing evidence. Uh, they forced the LAPD to eventually form a task force uh, and the LA City Council to authorize a reward of $35,000 for capture and, and conviction of the killer, killers. Now, the Black Coalition was not the first or only organization in the country calling attention to serial murders of Black women, as we uh, heard from uh, Tarion. But I want to really spend the next few minutes highlighting what was unique about the Black Coalition, what was unique about their analysis and the analysis that, that Margaret brought uh, to, to this work. For one thing, the problem they faced, uh, they understood went way beyond a single deranged individual. Uh, she and the Black Coalition understood that state policies and state violence were behind the deaths of these women by making them vulnerable to femicide, to premature death. Uh, you know, Margaret knew that poverty, precarity, gendered violence, uh, the erosion of the social safety net, whatever's left of it, and the fact that so many Black families lose members to the criminal justice system left so many Black women and girls vulnerable to things like sex trafficking, physical and sexual abuse, and homelessness. Black girls make up uh, more than 40% of the U.S. domestic trafficking victims, and yet police routinely classify missing Black girls uh, as runaways rather than as abductees. They're not, you know, they're, they're being abducted, uh, presuming that Black victims of sex trafficking are willing participants, which then makes them subject to prosecution and thus unworthy of protection. In other words, you know, Margaret Prescott understood what many of us still do not, and that is the deaths of Deborah Jackson, Henrietta Wright, Barbara Ware, Bernita Sparks, and, and all the others mentioned were as political 
as the killing of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, and others. We don't see the politics all the time because of the ways in which the victims are devalued. Uh, you know, Margaret often tells the story of the police official who asked, you know, why are you so concerned about all this? You know, he's only killing hookers. And, you know, we've, we've heard that before. You see it in, in, in the movies. You see it on, you know, um, special victims unit, right? Uh, we've heard that refrain many times. The cops characterize the victims as drug addicts, as runaways. And this compels a lot of the activists and the victims' families oftentimes. It puts them in a defensive position. And they feel compelled to defend the reputations of the victims, um, the, you know, their innocence, to prove that they deserve justice. But here's the thing. So Margaret and the Black Coalition refused to play along from the very beginning. The truth is, most of the women whose lives uh, Margaret Prescott uh, were interacting with at the time and fought for were, in fact, sex workers and addicts. But rather than deny it, she insisted that their livelihood and the racialized and gendered web of oppression maintained by the sex industry, the drug economy, the police, and the criminal justice system made them more vulnerable to femicide, but no less valuable, no less valuable. As the co-founder of International Black Women for Wages for Housework and a central figure in the organization of sex workers and welfare mothers, uh, Margaret grasped the gendered economic basis for poor women's vulnerability and defended all reproductive labor as valuable work. That is to say, work deserving dignity, work deserving protection, and work deserving fair compensation, including, of course, sex work. So long before uh, she founded the Black Coalition, she was fighting against the very conditions that rendered all poor and working class Black women subject to premature death. So to understand her revolutionary perspective, we've got to go back a bit. And, you know, most of you know her story, going back to her native Barbados, uh, being an early civil rights activist in New York City in the 70s. She taught uh, adult literacy in the SEEK program, Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge at Queens College, part of City University of New York. And the program was really unique in that it was designed to help low-income Black and Latinx students succeed, uh, many of whom were, of course, welfare mothers, mothers on public assistance. The SEEK program became a hotbed of feminist organizing, it had the teachers included people like June Jordan, Adrian Rich, Audre Lorde, uh, and then two women who would become really important comrades, Andae, a revolutionary organizer, an intellectual who would return to her native Guyana and help found the Working People's Alliance. She recently passed away a couple of years ago. And Wilmot Brown, a former Black Panther from Newark, who ended up in England. The three of them were drawn to the writings of Selma James, uh, founder of Wages for Housework Movement, and having worked with welfare mothers and poor Black women, reading Selma James reinforced their critique of liberal feminism and helped them see how uh, demanding money from the state rather than competing with men for a career was critical for advancing women's liberation. And so therefore you see 
Margaret, you know, organizing sex workers, first as part of uh, Coyote, and then as a founder of the U.S. Prostitutes Collective, uh, they, you know, argued that the criminalization of sex workers kept them in a state of precarity and dependency because sex workers had no right to legal protection. So the idea was abolish the laws criminalizing them. Uh, this was especially the case for Black women who faced a higher chance of arrests and violence than white sex workers and were subject to a state authority that would declare them unfit mothers and place their children into foster care. So even before like the whole divest, invest uh, uh, movement was all the rage among abolitionists, uh, the prostitutes collective was arguing that state funds used to police sex work and basically divide families could actually be used for housing, childcare, social services, and to create safe houses for uh, those who are runaway minors. So my point is, um, Margaret Prescott never hid or evaded the fact that the victims, many of whom were in fact uh, compelled into uh, sex work. And in her view, and that of the Black community at large, how these women earned a living was actually irrelevant because many of the victims were mothers. Um, the Black Coalition did some things that we don't always talk about, like they set up mutual aid networks to provide food, clothing, and financial assistance uh, to the families of the victims. They provided counseling for the children who were left behind, really thinking about uh, what were the, the consequences of these murders for the families and for the whole community. And still, while they're doing all this work, the body count kept rising. And at every press conference, you could see, um, you know, Margaret Prescott, you know, out there challenging uh, Police Chief Daryl Gates to explain why the LAPD withheld information from the public for nearly two years, uh, why they didn't make an arrest, why they had a different response to some of the other uh, serial murders that affected white women, like the Hillside Strangler, the Ninth Stalker, all that stuff. And yet she knew all along, the Black Coalition knew all along, that the police were never capable of stopping the murders and delivering justice. Uh, they consistently pointed out that the LAPD's slow and meager response had to do with the class, the occupation, and the color of the victims. Um, and they even, you know, as a last resort, tried to turn to, to Mayor Tom Bradley to get a federal investigation. But even Tom Bradley was like, no, 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 Gates can handle it, you know. Um, Margaret understood that the problem was never a matter of manpower. And this is a a really important point I want to drive home as I come to a conclusion here. Um, it was never a matter of manpower because law enforcement in LA County and prison construction throughout the state experienced spectacular growth during this very same period in the 1980s and 90s, fueled by the war on drugs and the state strategy of prison expansion as one means of jumpstarting California's stalled economy. So between 1984 and 1990, the LAPD uh, force, and I'm not even talking about the county sheriff because they were also involved, but the LAPD uh, uh, force grew from uh, 6,900 officers to 8,400 officers. And part of the windfall that the police enjoyed had to do with the fact that they got all these extra resources 
due to the 1984 Olympic Games. Again, this is all simultaneous with the murders of these women. Um, and of course, what did the LAP do? They deployed those resources to escalate its war on black and brown youth, uh, ostensibly the war on gangs, which was sold to the public as a war on drugs. Even though the targeted gangs only accounted for about a quarter of the drug trade, it didn't matter uh, because by the mid-1980s, LA and the nation more broadly witnessed a dram dramatic increase in crack cocaine use. These women, the women we're talking about, the women were memorialized, memorializing, uh, were the casualties of war. The war on drugs heightened police harassment of sex workers in South Los Angeles, especially as crack cocaine uh, reshaped the economy and the sex economy. Many, if not most of the victims were trading sex for crack or working the streets to earn money to secure drugs. You know? And again, I'm not saying all, because again, like as Terrian pointed out, the, the scope is, is, is enormous in terms of children and elders uh, being victims of, of violence and of femicide. But in terms of this core, um, it's important to, to put it in the context of the war on drugs. Their relative isolation as poor Black women, um, you know, often having to deal with the drug economy, expose them to violence from clients, from pimps, from dealers, from cops, from predators. Uh, and nearly all male, they all controlled every aspect of the underground economy. And women were, of course, denied and still are denied an equal share of the revenues. So it keeps them dependent on men and subject to exposure since women and girls are on the front lines of where the sexual and drug economies meet. These women were harassed, are harassed, shaken down, and especially vulnerable to what? To rape and murder. Uh, so this very web of oppression is precisely what the abolition of all laws pertaining to sex work promise to end. So the bottom line here is that there is a relationship between the struggle for autonomy of sex workers uh, in state violence, the expansion of the police power, and the abolition of those kinds of laws, and the abolition of the, of the carceral state. You know, so meanwhile, in the shadow of police power, Black women continue to be killed. Uh, Margaret Prescott went on to be the principal coordinator, a principal coordinator of the global women's strike in 2000, which mobilized under the slogan, invest in caring, not killing. The strike clearly reflected an older tradition of women's peace movements and the call to invest in caring, not killing is really an unambiguous appeal to anti-militarism. But that's not all. We can read this slogan as an abolitionist demand to put forward uh, or put forward by the combatants of this domestic war, right? In many ways, this memorial is an anti-war memorial. I hope we could think about it this way. It recognizes and mourns the loss of so many Black women, and at the same time reminds us that the war is hardly over, and the police cannot win this war. On the contrary, policing and the criminal justice system perpetuate this war. The Black coalition fighting back serial murders is the model of the kind of anti-war movement that we need and our survival depends on it. So put your money behind this and please uh, support building this memorial 
um, and support all the work of the Black Coalition. Thank you. Well, Dr. Kelly, uh, Robin uh, Kelly, thank you so very much. So well put. Casualties of War, an anti-war memorial. Thank you, Robin. You know, we hadn't really thought of it in that way, but when you uttered those words, it made perfect sense. Thank you for all of your support and everything that you do, Dr. Robin Kelly, including supporting those student workers that are now on strike in the UC system. Thank you for that as well. Thank you. And Robin, you mentioned my name quite a bit. You know, none of us can do this alone. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the strike and Selma James and Nina Lopez over in London, Rachel West, who's on this call right now with U.S. Prostitutes Collective. They were some early, early supporters of this work of the Black Coalition. And I ran across a statement from us pros from the early days. I do also want to lift up Bobby Hodges Betts, who's one of the early members of the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders in the mid-1980s. She's having some health challenges, so we want to hold her in our hearts and lift her up. Laverne Butler-Scriven and Alma Stent, there were so many stood with me and the women in Los Angeles who were part of the Global Women's Strike, Sydney Ross Risden, who is actually on this call, the late Ruth Tedasco and others, we wouldn't have been able to do it without our sisters standing with us. Any last quick send off, Chandra? We are all connected and may we continue to see ourselves as connected in the struggle. We're out of time today. Show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, who did the editing for today's show. And I'd like to thank our board operator, Gary Baca. I'd also like to thank the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders for allowing us to share this discussion with you. For those of you who would like to support the Black Coalition and or the Victims Memorial Project, just go to www.rosesouthla.org. That's www.rosesouthla.org. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you so much for listening. You all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.